Part Two: Sacredness, the Warrior's World. Chapter Eleven: Nowness. From the moment you are born, when you first cry and breathe, free from your mother's womb, you are a separate individual. Of course, there is still emotional attachment or an emotional umbilical cord that connects you to your parents. But as you grow older and pass from infancy into youth and maturity, as each year passes, your attachment decreases. You become an individual who can function separate from your mother and father. In that journey through life, human beings must overcome the neurotic attachment of being the child of somebody. The principles of warriorship that we discussed in Part One. Are connected with how individuals can develop personal discipline, so that they become mature and independent, and therefore experience a sense of personal freedom. But then, once that development has taken place, it is equally important to share the comradeship of human society. This is an organic expression of the greater vision of warriorship. It is based on the appreciation of a larger world. In the process of becoming a warrior. You naturally begin to feel a deep fellowship with human beings. That is the real basis for helping others, and ultimately for making a genuine contribution to society. However, your connection to other human beings and your concern for their welfare have to be manifested personally, practically. Abstractly caring about others is not enough. The most practical and immediate way to begin sharing with others and working for their benefit is to work with your own domestic situation and to expand from there. So, an important step in becoming a warrior is to become a family person, someone who respects his or her everyday domestic life and is committed to uplifting that situation. You can't help society purely on the basis of your vision for the nation or the world. There are many ideas of how to organize a society so that it will fulfill people's needs. There is, of course, the popular idea of democratic rule, rule by the people. Another approach is that rule by an elite will produce a progressive society. A third idea is to take a scientific approach to ruling, in which natural resources are equally distributed and a completely balanced ecology is created. These and other ideas may have value, but they must be integrated with an individual human being's experience of domestic life. Otherwise, you have a huge gap between your grand vision for society and the reality of everyday existence. To use one model of family life, a man and a woman meet, they fall in love and marry, they set up a household, and then they may have children. Then they have to worry about whether the dishwasher is working. Or whether they have the money to buy a new stove, as the children grow up, they go to school to learn to read and write. Some children may have an ideal relationship with their parents, but the family has money problems, or there may be lots of money but a very difficult family relationship. We go back and forth between those problems. We should respect life on that mundane level. Because the only way to implement our vision for society is to bring it down to the situation of a single household. Becoming a family person also means taking pride in the wisdom of your family heritage. From the Shambhala point of view, respecting your family and your upbringing has nothing to do with separating yourself from others or becoming arrogant about your ancestry. Rather, it is based on realizing that the structure. And experience of family life actually reflect the deep-seated wisdom of a culture. That wisdom has been passed down to you, and it is actually present in your everyday domestic life. So, by appreciating your family tradition, you are opening yourself further to the richness of the world. I remember very clearly the experience of discovering my own connection to family heritage. I was born in a cowshed in eastern Tibet, where people have never seen a tree. The people of that region live on pasture land that has no trees or even bushes. They subsist on meat and milk products throughout the whole year. I was born a son of this genuine earth, the son of a peasant. 
At a very early age, I was recognized as a tulku or incarnate lama, and I was taken to the Sermong monasteries to receive my training and become a monk. So almost from birth, I was taken out of my family situation and placed in a monastic environment. I was always called by my religious name, Trumpa Rinpoche. Nevertheless, I never forgot my birth. When I moved to the monastery, my mother accompanied me and stayed with me for several years, until I was old enough to begin my formal education. Once, when I was about four or five, I asked my mother, "Mother, what is our name?" She was very shy. She said, "What do you mean by our? You know that your name is Trumpa Rinpoche." But I insisted. I asked, "What is our name?" Our family name. Where do we come from? And she said, "Well, you should forget that. It's a very humble name, and you might be ashamed of it." But I still insisted, saying, "What is our family name? What is it?" At the time, I was playing with some pickled radishes that are fed to horses. I was picking up these little pickled radishes off the floor outside the monastery kitchen. Tulkus are not supposed to eat them, but I was chewing on one, and I kept saying, "Mother, what is our name? What is our family name?" I was about to bite into another pickled radish, which was dirty, and she was very concerned, and she was so shy, but she was also intrigued that I had asked. We had an intense moment of relating with each other. I remember that it was a sunny day, and the sun shone from a window in the roof onto her face. She looked old and young at the same time. I kept asking, "What is our family name?" And finally, she said, "Mukpo, Mukpo, of course. But don't bite that pickle; it's for the horses." I'm afraid I did bite it, and I remember chewing it. It was very crunchy. And tasted something like a sukemono, a kind of Japanese pickle, and I liked it very much. I looked at my mother and asked, "Does that mean I'm Mukpo too?" She wasn't quite sure. She said, "Well, you are Rinpoche." Then I distinctly remember asking her whether I was her son, who came out of her body. And at first, she said yes, but then she said, "Well, maybe I'm an inhuman being, a subhuman being." I have a woman's body. I had an inferior birth. Please go back to your quarters. And she took me in her arms and carried me from the kitchen annex to my quarters. Nonetheless, I have kept the name Mukpo as my family name, my identity and pride. My mother was a very gentle person. As far as I know, she never did anything aggressive. And she was always accommodating and kind to others. I learned a great deal about the principles of human society from the wisdom of my mother. In modern times, the emphasis has shifted away from the family as the focus of society. Earlier, the focus on the family was partly a matter of survival. For example, before there were hospitals and doctors, a woman often relied on her mother to help her deliver her children. And for help in raising the children, but now, medical research has incorporated the grandmother's wisdom, and children are delivered by doctors in a hospital maternity ward. In most areas, the grandparents' wisdom is no longer needed, and they have no role to play. They end up in an old age home or a retirement community, and occasionally they come to visit their grandchildren and watch how nicely they play. In some societies, people used to set up shrines to venerate their ancestors. Even today, in such a modern society as Japan, there is still a strong tradition of ancestor worship. You may think that such practices are purely a function of primitive thinking or superstition, but in fact, the veneration of your ancestral lineage can be a sign of respect for the accumulated wisdom of your culture. I'm not suggesting that we reinstate ancestor worship. But it is necessary to appreciate that for many thousands of years, human beings have been collecting wisdom. We should appreciate the accomplishments of our ancestors, that human beings learned to make tools, 
that they develop knives and bows and arrows, that they learn to cut down trees to cook their food and to add spices to it, we should not ignore the contributions of the past. How to construct a building has thousands of years of history behind it. First human beings lived in caves, then they learned how to build huts, then they learned how to construct a building with pillars and columns. Finally, they learned how to construct a building without columns in the center, with arches spanning the ceiling, which is a remarkable discovery. Such wisdom has to be respected. It is not regarded as a setting sun approach at all. Many people must have been crushed when they tried to build a structure without central columns and it collapsed. People must have sacrificed their lives until a model was developed that worked. You might say such an accomplishment is insignificant, but on the other hand, the failure to appreciate the resourcefulness of human existence, which we call basic goodness, has become one of the world's biggest problems. However, venerating the past in itself will not solve the world's problems. We need to find the link between our traditions and our present experience of life. Nowness, or the magic of the present moment, is what joins the wisdom of the past with the present. When you appreciate a painting, or a piece of music, or a work of literature, no matter when it was created, you appreciate it now. You experience the same nowness in which it was created. It is always now. The way to experience nowness is to realize that this very moment, this very point in your life, is always the occasion. So the consideration of where you are and what you are on the spot is very important. That is one reason that your family situation, your domestic everyday life, is so important. You should regard your home as sacred, as a golden opportunity to experience nowness. Appreciating sacredness begins very simply by taking an interest in all the details of your life. Interest is simply applying awareness to what goes on in your everyday life. Awareness while you're cooking, awareness while you're driving, awareness while you're changing diapers, even awareness while you're arguing. Such awareness can help to free you from speed, chaos, neurosis, and resentment of all kinds. It can free you from the obstacles to nowness so that you can cheer up on the spot all the time. The principle of nowness is also very important to any effort to establish an enlightened society. You may wonder what the best approach is to helping society and how you can know that what you are doing is authentic or good. The only answer is nowness. Now is the important point. That now is a real now. If you are unable to experience now, then you are corrupted because you are looking for another now, which is impossible. If you do that, there can only be past or future. When corruption enters a culture, it is because that culture ceases to be now. It becomes past and future. Periods in history, when great art was created, when learning advanced or peace spread, were all now. Those situations happened at the very moment of their now. But after now happened, then those cultures lost their now. You have to maintain nowness so that you don't duplicate corruption, so that you don't corrupt now, and so that you don't have false synonyms for now at all. The vision of enlightened society is that tradition and culture and wisdom and dignity can be experienced now and kept now on everyone's part. In that way, there can never be corruption of any kind at all. Enlightened society must rest on a good foundation. The nowness of your family situation is that foundation. From it, you can expand. By regarding your home as sacred, you can enter into domestic situations with awareness and with delight, rather than feeling that you are subjecting yourself to chaos. It may seem that washing dishes and cooking dinner are completely mundane activities, but if you apply awareness in any situation, then you are training your whole being so that you will be able to open yourself further, rather than narrowing your existence. 
You may feel that you have a good vision for society, but that your life is filled with hassles, money problems, problems relating to your spouse or caring for your children, and that those two things, vision and ordinary life, are opposing one another. But vision and practicality can be joined together in nowness. Too often, people think that solving the world's problems is based on conquering the earth rather than on touching the earth, touching ground. That is one definition of the setting sun mentality, trying to conquer the earth so that you can ward off reality. There are all kinds of deodorant sprays to keep you from smelling the real world and all kinds of processed food to keep you from tasting raw ingredients. Shambhala vision is not trying to create a fantasy world where no one has to see blood or experience a nightmare. Shambhala vision is based on living on this earth, the real earth, the earth that grows crops, the earth that nurtures your existence. You can learn to live on this earth, how to camp, how to pitch a tent, how to ride a horse, milk a cow, build a fire. Even though you may be living in a city in the 21st century, you can learn to experience the sacredness, the nowness of reality. That is the basis for creating an enlightened society. Chapter 12 Discovering Magic In 20th century society, the appreciation of simplicity has almost been lost. From London to Tokyo, there are problems with trying to create pleasure and comfort out of speed. The world is mechanized to such an extent that you don't even have to think. You just push a button and a computer gives you the answer. You don't have to learn to count. You press a button and a machine counts for you. Casualness has become increasingly popular because people think in terms of efficiency rather than appreciation. Why bother to wear a tie if the purpose of wearing clothes is just to cover your body? If the reason for eating food is only to fill your stomach and provide nutrition, why bother to look for the best meat, the best butter, the best vegetables? But the reality of the world is something more than the lifestyle that the 21st century world has embraced. Pleasure has been cheapened, joy has been reduced, happiness has been computerized. The goal of warriorship is to reconnect to the nowness of reality so that you can go forward without destroying simplicity, without destroying your connection to this earth. In the last chapter, we discussed the importance of nowness as a way of joining together the wisdom of the past with the challenge of the present. In this chapter, we are going to discuss how to discover the ground of nowness. In order to rediscover nowness, you have to look back, back to where you came from, back to the original state. In this case, looking back is not looking back in time, going back several thousand years, it is looking back into your own mind to before history began, before thinking began, before thought ever occurred. When you are in contact with this original ground, then you are never confused by the illusions of past and future. You are able to rest continuously in nowness. This original state of being can be likened to a primordial or cosmic mirror, by primordial, we mean unconditioned, not caused by any circumstances. Something primordial is not a reaction for or against any situation. All conditionality comes from unconditionality. Anything that is made has to come from what was unmade to begin with. If something is conditioned, it has been created or formed. In the English language, we speak of formulating ideas or plans, or we may say, how should we form our organization? Or we may talk about the formation of a cloud. In contrast to that, the unconditioned is free from being formed, free from creation. This unconditioned state is likened to a primordial mirror because like a mirror, it is willing to reflect anything from the gross level up to the refined level and it still remains as it is. 
The basic frame of reference of the cosmic mirror is quite vast, and it is free from any bias, kill or cure, hope or fear. The way to look back and experience the state of being of the cosmic mirror is simply to relax. In this case, relaxation is quite different from the setting sun idea of flopping or taking time off, entertaining yourself with a good vacation. Relaxation here refers to relaxing the mind, letting go of the anxiety and concepts and depression that normally bind you. The way to relax or rest the mind in nowness is through the practice of meditation. In part one, we discussed how the practice of meditation is connected to renouncing small-mindedness and personal territory. In meditation, you are neither for nor against your experience. That is, you don't praise some thoughts and condemn others, but you take an unbiased approach. You let things be as they are, without judgment, and in that way, you yourself learn to be, to express your existence directly, non-conceptually. That is the ideal state of relaxation, which allows you to experience the nowness of the cosmic mirror. In fact, it is already the experience of the cosmic mirror. If you are able to relax, relax to a cloud by looking at it, relax to a drop of rain and experience its genuineness, you can see the unconditionality of reality, which remains very simply in things as they are, very simply. When you are able to look at things without saying, this is for me or against me, I can go along with this, or I cannot go along with this, then you are experiencing the state of being of the cosmic mirror, the wisdom of the cosmic mirror. You may see a fly buzzing. You may see a snowflake. You may see ripples of water. You may see a black widow spider. You may see anything, but you can actually look at all those things with simple and ordinary but appreciative perception. You experience a vast realm of perceptions unfolding. There is unlimited sound, unlimited sight, unlimited taste, unlimited feeling, and so on. The realm of perception is limitless, so limitless that perception itself is primordial, unthinkable, beyond thought. There are so many perceptions that they are beyond imagination. There are a vast number of sounds. There are sounds that you have never heard. There are sights and colors that you have never seen. There are feelings that you have never experienced before. There are endless fields of perception. Perception here is not just what you perceive, but the whole act of perceiving, the interaction between consciousness, the sense organs, and the sense fields, or the objects of perception. In some religious traditions, sense perceptions are regarded as problematic because they arouse worldly desires. However, in the Shambhala tradition, which is a secular tradition rather than a religious one, sense perceptions are regarded as sacred. They are regarded as basically good. They are a natural gift, a natural ability that human beings have. They are a source of wisdom if you don't see sights, if you don't hear sounds, if you don't taste food, you have no way to communicate with the phenomenal world at all. But because of the extraordinary vastness of perception, you have possibilities of communicating with the depth of the world, the world of sight, the world of sound, the greater world. In other words, your sense faculties give you access to possibilities of deeper perception. Beyond ordinary perception, there is super-sound, super-smell and super-feeling existing in your state of being. These can be experienced only by training yourself in the depth of meditation practice, which clarifies any confusion or cloudiness and brings out the precision, sharpness, and wisdom of perception, the nowness of your world. In meditation, you experience the precision of breath going in and out. You feel your breath. It is so good. You breathe out. Breath dissolves. It is so sharp and good. It is so extraordinary that ordinary preoccupations become superfluous. So meditation practice brings out the supernatural, if I may use that word. You do not see ghosts or become telepathic, but your perceptions become supernatural, simply supernatural. 
Normally, we limit the meaning of perceptions. Food reminds us of eating. Dirt reminds us to clean the house. Snow reminds us that we have to clean off the car or get to work. A face reminds us of our love or hate. In other words, we fit what we see into a comfortable or familiar scheme. We shut any vastness or possibilities of deeper perception out of our hearts by fixating on our own interpretation of phenomena. But it is possible to go beyond personal interpretation, to let vastness into our hearts through the medium of perception. We always have a choice. We can limit our perception so that we close off vastness, or we can allow vastness to touch us. When we draw down the power and depth of vastness into a single perception, then we are discovering and invoking magic. By magic, we do not mean a natural power over the phenomenal world, but rather the discovery of innate or primordial wisdom in the world as it is. The wisdom we are discovering is wisdom without beginning, something naturally wise, the wisdom of the cosmic mirror. In Tibetan, this magical quality of existence or natural wisdom is called drala. Dra means enemy or opponent, and la means above. So drala literally means above the enemy, beyond the enemy. Drala is the unconditioned wisdom and power of the world that are beyond any dualism. Therefore, drala is above any enemy or conflict. It is wisdom beyond aggression. It is the self-existing wisdom and power of the cosmic mirror that are reflected both in us and in our world of perception. One of the key points in discovering Drala principle is realizing that your own wisdom as a human being is not separate from the power of things as they are. They are both reflections of the unconditioned wisdom of the cosmic mirror. Therefore, there is no fundamental separation or duality between you and your world. When you can experience those two things together, as one, so to speak, then you have access to tremendous vision and power in the world. You find that they're inherently connected to your own vision, your own being. That is discovering magic. We are not talking here about an intellectual revelation. We're speaking of actual experience. We are talking about how we actually perceive reality. The discovery of Drala may come as an extraordinary smell, a fantastic sound, a vivid color, an unnatural taste. Any perception can connect us to reality properly and fully. What we see doesn't have to be pretty particularly. We can appreciate anything that exists. There is some principle of magic in everything, some living quality, something living something real, is taking place in everything. When we see things as they are, they make sense to us. The way leaves move when they are blown by the wind, the way rocks get wet when there are snowflakes sitting on them. We see how things display their harmony and their chaos at the same time. So we are never limited by beauty alone, but we appreciate all sides of reality properly. Many stories and poems written for children describe the experience of invoking the magic of a simple perception. One example is Waiting at the Window, From Now We Are Six, by A. A. Milne. It is a poem about spending several hours on a rainy day looking out the window, watching drops of water come down and make patterns on the glass. Reading this poem, you see the window, the rainy day, and the child with his face pressed to the glass watching the raindrops and you feel the child's sense of delight and wonder. The poems of Robert Louis Stevenson in A Child's Garden of Verses have a similar quality of using very ordinary experiences to communicate the depth of perception. The poems My Shadow, My Kingdom, and Armies in the Fire exemplify this. The fundamental vastness of the world cannot be expressed directly in words, but in children's literature... Very often, it is possible to express that vastness in simplicity. The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry is another wonderful example of literature that evokes the sense of ordinary or elemental magic. At one point in this story, the Little Prince meets a fox. The prince is very lonely and wants the fox to play with him, 
but the fox says that he cannot play unless he is tamed. The little prince asks the meaning of the word tame. The fox explains that it means to establish ties in such a way that the fox will become unique to the little prince and the prince unique to the fox. Later, after the fox has been tamed and the little prince must leave him, the fox also tells the prince what he calls my secret, a very simple secret, which is, it is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. Saint-Exupéry has a different vocabulary here for describing the discovery of magic or drala, but the experience is basically the same. Discovering drala is indeed to establish ties to your world so that each perception becomes unique. It is to see with the heart so that what is invisible to the eye becomes visible as the living magic of reality. There may be thousands or billions of perceptions, but they are still one, If you see one candle, you know exactly what all the candles in the whole world look like. They're all made out of fire, flame. Seeing one drop of water can be seeing all water. Drala could almost be called an entity. It is not quite on the level of a god or gods, but it is an individual strength that does exist. Therefore, we not only speak of Drala principle, but we speak of meeting the dralas. The dralas are the elements of reality, water of water, fire of fire, earth of earth, anything that connects you with the elemental quality of reality, anything that reminds you of the depth of perception. There are dralas in the rocks, or the trees, or the mountains, or a snowflake, or a clod of dirt. Whatever is there, whatever you come across in your life, Those are the dralas of reality. When you make that connection with the elemental quality of the world, you are meeting dralas on the spot. At that point, you are meeting them. That is the basic existence of which all human beings are capable. We always have possibilities of discovering magic. Whether it is medieval times or the 21st century, the possibility of magic is always there. A particular example of meeting Drala in my personal experience is flower arranging. Whatever branches you find, none of them is rejected as ugly. They can always be included. You have to learn to see their place in the situation. That is the key point, so you never reject anything. That is how to make a connection with the Dralas of reality. Drala energy is like the sun. If you look in the sky, the sun is there. By looking at it, you don't produce a new sun. You may feel that you created or made today's sun by looking at it, but the sun is eternally there. When you discover the sun in the sky, you begin to communicate with it. Your eyes begin to relate with the light of the sun. In the same way, Drala principle is always there. Whether you care to communicate with it or not, the magical strength and wisdom of reality are always there. That wisdom abides in the cosmic mirror. By relaxing the mind, you can reconnect with that primordial, original ground, which is completely pure and simple. Out of that, through the medium of your perceptions, you can discover magic or drala. You actually can connect your own intrinsic wisdom with a sense of greater wisdom or vision beyond you. You might think that something extraordinary will happen to you when you discover magic. Something extraordinary does happen. You simply find yourself in the realm of utter reality, complete and thorough reality. Chapter 13. How to Invoke Magic The phenomenal world that all human beings experience is fickle and flexible and also merciless. You often wonder whether you can ride on that fickle and merciless situation or whether it is going to ride on you. To use an analogy, either you are riding on a donkey or the donkey is riding on you. Ordinarily, in your experience of the world, it is questionable who is riding on whom. The more you struggle to gain the upper hand, the more speed and aggression you manufacture to overcome your obstacles, the more you become subject to the phenomenal world. 
The real challenge is to transcend that duality altogether. It is possible to contact energy that is beyond dualism, beyond aggression, energy that is neither for you nor against you. That is the energy of Drala. Drala is not a god or spirit, but fundamentally it is connecting the wisdom of your own being with the power of things as they are. If you are able to connect those two things, out of that you can discover magic in everything. But there is still a question as to what it is that allows you to make that connection. In the last chapter, the Drala principle was likened to the sun. Although the sun is always in the sky, what is it that causes you to look up and see that it is there? Although magic is always available, what allows you to discover it? The basic definition of Drala is energy beyond aggression. The only way to contact that energy is to experience a gentle state of being in yourself. So the discovery of Drala is not coincidental. To connect with the fundamental magic of reality, there has to be gentleness and openness in you already. Otherwise, there's no way to recognize the energy of non-aggression, the energy of Drala in the world. So the individual training and discipline of the Shambhala warrior are the necessary foundation for experiencing Drala. The setting sun world, based on fear of yourself and fear of death, has no connection to Drala principle. The cowardice and aggression of the setting sun outlook actually dispel any magical possibilities, any possibilities of experiencing the genuine and brilliant qualities of reality. The opposite of setting sun outlook and the way to invoke Drala is to manifest the vision of the Great Eastern Sun. Great Eastern Sun vision, which we discussed in earlier chapters, is the expression of true human goodness, based not on arrogance or aggression, but on gentleness and openness. It is the way of the warrior. The essence of this way or path is transcending cowardice and manifesting bravery. That is the best and only way to invoke Drala, by creating an atmosphere of bravery. We've already talked in earlier chapters about the qualities of bravery. The fundamental aspect of bravery is being without deception. Deception in this case is self-deception, doubting yourself so that you are cut off from the vision of the Great Eastern Sun. The Dralas can only descend onto your existence when you have properly prepared the ground. If there is the slightest deception, you will dispel Drala. From that point of view, deception is the magic of the setting sun. Usually, if we say someone is brave, we mean that he is not afraid of any enemy, or he is willing to die for a cause, or he is never intimidated. The Shambhala understanding of bravery is quite different. Here, bravery is the courage to be, to live in the world without any deception, and with tremendous kindness and caring for others. You might wonder how this can bring magic into your life. The ordinary idea of magic is that you can conquer the elements so that you can turn earth into fire or fire into water or ignore the law of gravity and fly. But true magic is the magic of reality as it is. The earth of earth, the water of water, communicating with the elements so that in some sense they become one with you. When you develop bravery, you make a connection with the elemental quality of existence. Bravery begins to heighten your existence, that is, to bring out the brilliant and genuine qualities of your environment and of your own being. So you begin to contact the magic of reality, which is already there in some sense. You actually can attract the power and strength and the primordial wisdom that arise from the cosmic mirror. At that point, you begin to see how you can influence your environment so that the Drala principle is reflected in every activity of your life. You see that you can actually organize your life in such a way that you magnetize magic or Drala to manifest brilliance and elegance in your world. The way to do this is divided into three parts, which are called the three ways to invoke Drala. The first is invoking external drala, which is invoking magic in your physical environment. This may be as small and limited as a one-room apartment 
or as large as a mansion or a hotel. How you organize and care for that space is very important. If it is chaotic and messy, then no drala will enter into that environment. On the other hand, we are not talking about taking a course in interior decoration and spending a great deal of money on furniture and rugs to create a model environment. For the warrior, invoking external drala is creating harmony in your environment in order to encourage awareness and attention to detail. In that way, your physical environment promotes your discipline of warriorship. Beyond that, how you organize your physical space should be based on concern for others, sharing your world by creating an accommodating environment. The point is not to make a self-conscious statement about yourself, but to make your world available to others. When that begins to happen, then it is possible that something else will come along as well. That is, when you express gentleness and precision in your environment, then real brilliance and power can descend onto that situation. If you try to manufacture that presence out of your own ego, it will never happen. You cannot own the power and magic of this world. It is always available, but it does not belong to anyone. There are many other examples of invoking external drala. I have read, for instance, that some Native American peoples in the Southwest grow vegetables in the desert sands. The soil, from an objective standpoint, is completely infertile. If you just threw a handful of seeds into that earth, nothing would grow. But the Native Americans have been cultivating that soil for generations. They have a deep connection to that earth and they care for it. To them, it is sacred ground, and because of that, their plants grow. That is real magic. The attitude of sacredness towards your environment will bring drala. You may live in a dirt hut with no floor and only one window, but if you regard that space as sacred, if you care for it with your heart and mind, then it will be a palace. The idea of sacred space is also what gives grandeur to a great cathedral like Chartres or to a house of government like the English Houses of Parliament. Churches are consciously built as sacred places, whereas a house of government may never have been conceived of as sacred by its architects. Nevertheless, those places have a presence that is more than the structure of the building or the beauty of the materials used to construct them. They radiate a particular atmosphere that you cannot help but feel. The Greeks and the Romans laid out their cities with some understanding of external drala. You might say that putting a fountain in the center of a square or at a crossroads is a random choice. But when you come upon that fountain, it does not feel random at all. It is in its own proper place, and it seems to enhance the space around it. In modern times we don't think very highly of the Romans, with all of their debauchery and corrupt rulers. We tend to downplay the wisdom of their culture. Certainly, corruption dispels drala. But there was some power and wisdom in the Roman civilization which we should not overlook. In summary, invoking the external drala principle is connected with organizing your environment so that it becomes a sacred space. This begins with the organization of your personal household environment, and beyond that, it can include much larger environments such as a city or even an entire country. Then there is invoking internal drala, which is how to invoke drala in your body. Basically, the experience of internal drala is that you feel oneness in your body, oneness in the sense that your head, your shoulders, your torso, your arms, your genitals, your knees, your legs, and your toes all hang together as one basically good human body. You feel no quarrel between your head and shoulders, between your toes and legs, and so forth. It doesn't really matter whether your hair is growing gray or you're developing wrinkles on your face or your hands are shaky. There is still a feeling that your body has its own fitness, its own unity. When you look, you hear when you hear, you smell. When you smell, you taste. When you taste, you feel. All of your sense perceptions work as one unit, as one basic goodness, one expression of basic health. 
You invoke internal drama through your relationship to your personal habits, how you handle the details of dressing, eating, drinking, sleeping. We could use clothing as an example. For the warrior, clothing actually provides an armor of discipline, which wards off attacks from the setting sun world. It is not that you hide behind your clothes because you are afraid to manifest yourself as a good warrior, but rather that when you wear good, well-fit clothes, your clothing can both ward off casualness and invite tremendous dignity. Sometimes, if your clothes fit you well, you feel that they are too tight. If you dress up, you may feel constricted by wearing a necktie or a suit or a tight-fitting skirt or dress. The idea of invoking internal drama is not to give in to the allure of casualness. The occasional irritation coming from your neck, the crotch of your pants, or your waist is usually a good sign. It means that your clothes fit you well, but your neurosis doesn't fit your clothes. The modern approach is often free and casual. That is the attraction of polyester leisure suits. You feel stiff if you are dressed up. You are tempted to take off your tie or your jacket or your shoes. Then you can hang out and put your feet on the table and act freely, hoping that your mind will act freely at the same time. But at that point, your mind begins to dribble. It begins to leak, and garbage of all kinds comes out of your mind. That version of relaxation does not provide real freedom at all. Therefore, for the warrior, wearing well-fit clothing is regarded as wearing a suit of armor. How you dress can actually invoke upliftedness and grace. Internal drama also comes out of making a proper relationship to food by taking an interest in your diet. This does not necessarily mean that you should shop around for the best gourmet items, but you can take the time to plan good, nutritious meals, and you can enjoy cooking your food, eating it, and then cleaning up and putting the leftovers away. Beyond that. You invoke internal drama by developing greater awareness of how you use your mouth altogether. You put food in your mouth. You drink liquids through your mouth. You smoke cigarettes in your mouth. It is as if the mouth were a big hole or a big garbage pail. You put everything through it. Your mouth is the biggest gate. You talk out of it. You cry out of it, and you kiss out of it. You use your mouth so much. That it becomes a sort of cosmic gateway. Imagine that you were being watched by Martians; they would be amazed by how much you use your mouth. To invoke internal drama, you have to pay attention to how you use your mouth. Maybe you don't need to use it as much as you think. Appreciating your world doesn't mean that you must consume everything you see all the time. When you eat. You can eat slowly and moderately, and you can appreciate what you eat. When you talk, it isn't necessary to continually blurt out everything that is on your mind. You can say what you have to say gently, and then you can stop. You can let someone else talk, or you can appreciate the silence. The basic idea of invoking internal drama is that you can synchronize or harmonize your body and your connection to the phenomenal world. This synchronization or connectedness is something that you can actually see. You can see people's connection to internal drama by the way they behave, the way they pick up their teacups, the way they smoke their cigarettes, or the way they run their hands through their hair. Whatever you do always manifests how you are feeling about yourself and your environment. Whether you feel kindness towards yourself or resentment and anger towards yourself. Whether you feel good about your environment or whether you feel bad about your environment, that can always be detected by your gait and your gestures. Always, it is as if you were married to your phenomenal world. All the little details, the way you turn on the tap before you take a shower, the way you brush your teeth, reflect your connection or disconnection with the world. When that connection is completely synchronized, then you are experiencing internal drama. Finally, there is what is known as invoking secret drama, which is the product of invoking the external and internal drama principles. Because you have created a sacred environment around you, and because you have synchronized your body so beautifully, so immaculately, 
Therefore, you provoke tremendous wakefulness, tremendous nowness in your state of mind. The chapter "Letting Go" introduced the idea of wind horse or riding on the energy of basic goodness in your life. Wind horse is a translation of the Tibetan "lungta." Lung means wind, and ta means horse. Invoking secret drala is the experience of raising wind horse, raising a wind of delight and power, and riding on or conquering that energy. Such wind can come with great force. Like a typhoon that can blow down trees and buildings and create huge waves in the water, the personal experience of this wind comes as a feeling of being completely and powerfully in the present. The horse aspect is that, in spite of the power of this great wind, you also feel stability. You are never swayed by the confusion of life, never swayed by excitement or depression. You can ride on the energy of your life. So, wind horse is not purely movement and speed, but it includes practicality and discrimination, a natural sense of skill. This quality of lungta is like the four legs of a horse, which make it stable and balanced. Of course, in this case, you are not riding an ordinary horse; you are riding a wind horse. By invoking the external and internal drala principles. You raise a wind of energy and delight in your life. You begin to feel natural power and upliftedness manifesting in your existence. Then, having raised your wind horse, you can accommodate whatever arises in your state of mind. There is no problem or hesitation of any kind. So, the fruition of invoking secret drala is that, having raised wind horse, you experience a state of mind that is free from subconscious gossip. Free from hesitation and disbelief, you experience the very moment of your state of mind. It is fresh and youthful and virginal. That very moment is innocent and genuine. It does not contain doubt or disbelief at all. It is gullible in the positive sense, and it is completely fresh. Secret drala is experiencing that very moment of your state of mind, which is the essence of nowness. You actually experience being able to connect yourself to the inconceivable vision and wisdom of the cosmic mirror on the spot. At the same time, you realize that this experience of nowness can join together the vastness of primordial wisdom with both the wisdom of past traditions and the realities of contemporary life. So, in that way, you begin to see how the warrior's world of sacredness can be created altogether. In the following chapters, we will investigate that world more thoroughly. Chapter fourteen, overcoming arrogance. In the last chapter, we discussed ways to invoke the Drala principle. In this and the next chapter, we are going to discuss the obstacles to invoking Drala. Which must be overcome before we can master the disciplines of invoking external, internal, and secret drala. One of the important points in invoking drala is to prepare a ground of gentleness and genuineness. The basic obstacle to gentleness is arrogance. Arrogance comes from hanging on to the reference point of me and other. You may have studied the principles of warriorship and Great Eastern Sun Vision. And you may have received numerous teachings on how to rest in nowness and raise your wind horse, but if you regard those as your personal accomplishment, then you are missing the point. Instead of becoming gentle and tamed, you could become extremely arrogant. I, Joe Schmidt, am able to raise wind horse, and I feel good about that. I am beginning to accomplish something, so I am a big deal. Being gentle and without arrogance is the Shambhala definition of a gentleman. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, one of the definitions of a gentleman is someone who is not rude, someone whose behavior is gentle and thoroughly trained. However, for the warrior, gentleness is not just politeness. Gentleness is consideration, showing concern for others all the time. A Shambhala gentlewoman or gentleman. Is a decent person, a genuine person. He or she is very gentle to himself and to others. The purpose of any protocol or manners or discipline that we are taught is to have concern for others. 
We may think that if we have good manners, we are such good girls or good boys. We know how to eat properly and how to drink properly. We know how to behave properly, and aren't we smart? That is not the point. The point is that if we have bad table manners, they upset our neighbors, and in turn, our neighbors develop bad table manners, and they in turn upset others. If we misuse our napkins and our silverware because we are untrained, that creates problems for others. Good behavior is not meant to build us up, so that we can think of ourselves as little princes or princesses. The point of good behavior is to communicate our respect for others. So we should be concerned with how we behave. When someone enters a room, we should say hello or stand up and greet them with a handshake. Those rituals are connected with how to have more consideration for others. The principles of warriorship are based on training ourselves and developing self-control, so that we can extend ourselves to others. Those disciplines are important in order to cultivate the absence of arrogance. We tend to think that the threats to our society or to ourselves are outside of us. We fear that some enemy will destroy us. But a society is destroyed from the inside, not from an attack by outsiders. We may imagine the enemy coming with spears and machine guns to kill us, massacre us. In reality, the only thing that can destroy us is within ourselves. If we have too much arrogance, we will destroy our gentleness. And if we destroy gentleness, then we destroy the possibility of being awake. And then we cannot use our intuitive openness to extend ourselves in situations properly. Instead, we generate tremendous aggression. Aggression desecrates the ground altogether, the ground that you are sitting on, the walls around you, the ceiling, and windows and doorways. In turn, you have no place to invite the drollas to come in. The space becomes like an opium den, thick and heavy. And the drollas say, "Yuck! Who wants to go in there? Who's inviting us? Who's invoking us with their deception?" They won't come along at all. When the room is filled with you and your trip, no sensible person is attracted to that space. Even you aren't. When the environment is stuffy and full of arrogant, self-styled men and women, the drollas are repelled. But then. What happens if a warrior, someone who embodies non-aggression, freedom from arrogance, and humbleness, walks into that room? When such a person enters an intense situation full of arrogance and pollution, quite possibly the occupants of the room begin to feel funny. They feel that they can't have any fun and games anymore because someone who won't collaborate in their deception has walked in. They can't continue to crack setting sun jokes or indulge and sprawl on the floor, so usually they will leave. The warrior is left alone, sitting in that room. But then, after a while, a different group of people may walk in, looking for a fresh room, a clean atmosphere. They begin to assemble, gentle people who smile without arrogance or aggression. The atmosphere is quite different from the previous setting sun gathering. It may be slightly more rowdy than in the opium den, but the air is cheerful and fresh. Then there is the possibility that the drollas will begin to peek through the doors and the windows. They become interested, and soon they want to come in. And one by one, they enter. They accept food and drink, and they relax in that atmosphere because it is pure and clean. Because that atmosphere is without arrogance, the drollas begin to join in and share their greater sanity. When the warrior students experience an environment where the drollas are present, where reality is present, where the possibility of sanity is always there, they can appreciate the mountains, clouds, sky, sunshine, trees, flowers, brooks, the occasional cries and laughter of children. That is the main point of invoking drolla to appreciate reality fully and properly. Arrogant people can't see intensely bright red and blue. Brilliant white and orange, arrogant people are so involved with themselves, and they are competing so much with others that they won't even look. When you are fully gentle, without arrogance and without aggression, you see the brilliance of the universe. 
you develop a true perception of the universe. You can appreciate green, nicely shaped blades of grass, and you can appreciate a striped grasshopper with a tinge of copper color and black antennae. It is so beautiful sitting on a plant. As you walk towards it, it jumps off the plant. Little things like that are not boring sights. They are new discoveries. Every day you see different things. When I was in Texas a few years ago, I saw thousands of grasshoppers. Each one of them had its own approach, and they were striped with all sorts of colors. I didn't see any purple ones, but I saw copper, green, beige, and black ones with occasional red spots on them. The world is very interesting wherever you go, wherever you look. Whatever exists in our world is worth experiencing. Today, perhaps, there is a snowfall. There is snow sitting on the pine trees, and we can watch as the mountains catch the last rays of sun above their deep iron-blue foreground. When we begin to see details of that nature, we feel that the Drala principle is there already. We can't ignore the fantastic situations in the phenomenal world. We should actually take the opportunity, seize it on the spot. Invocation of the Drala principle comes from that fascination that we have and that we should have without arrogance. We can appreciate our world, which is so vivid and so beautiful.